0: Jackie Robinson is one of the most historic figures in the history of sport. After all, how can he not be, as he was the first to cross the color barrier in Major League Baseball. But the first man of color to be drafted in the National Football League is known to few, even though he actually had an outstanding career. Was it Hall of Fame worthy? Well, that's up for debate but he was a terrific player nonetheless. And today on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the career of a guy who actually led Indiana University to an undefeated season in football. And later, he started at seven different positions in the NFL. We're talking about the great George Talifera. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's
1: your host, Warren Rogan.
0: Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. So happy you tuned in for today's show about a truly remarkable man who didn't let anything or anyone stand in his way. George Talaferro, the first African-American drafted by an NFL team. But his story, well, it's so much more than that of a football player. And Joining us in just a few minutes will be Dawn Knight, a schoolteacher from Indiana who, while in college at Indiana University, took a class in which George Talaferro was her instructor. Later, she found out about George's past and the fact that he was one of the greatest football players in the history of Indiana University, and she wound up penning a book about George entitled Talaferro. Breaking Barriers from the NFL Draft to the Ivory Tower. Interestingly enough, I didn't know a lot about George until I heard of his passing this past October. And what a shame, because I think I would have really enjoyed speaking to him and bringing you that conversation. But, after learning of his death, I did a lot of research about George, found the book by Dawn, and sought her out. She had a terrific relationship with George, and in fact, throughout our conversation, she refers to George in the past and in the present. Sometimes, she speaks as if he's still with us. I think that's pretty cool. Like I said, George was so much more than just a football player. His contributions were many, and we'll cover some of them on today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. First, though, just a quick reminder that you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter. Our handle is at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook and check us out on the web at SportsFH.com. There, you can read more about our guests, check out our past episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes, and see who else is on the docket for upcoming shows as well. And if you'd like, you can make suggestions for future shows as well. Also, if you get the chance, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And finally, spread the word. Let your friends and family know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, thanks for your support. The story of George Talaferro is fascinating. He led Indiana to its only undefeated season, and he did that while he was a freshman, In fact, one opposing coach knew he would have trouble beating Indiana, so he managed to get the Army to draft George, which, of course, kept Talaferro off the field. And we'll talk more about that later with Dawn. Off the field, George helped so many, was a teacher, an advisor, and gave back so much. And here to tell us more about George Talaferro is my guest today, Dawn Knight. Dawn, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so happy to be here. You know, I want to start with this question first. Just to give everyone listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes a little background. Who was George Taliaferro and what makes him so significant in the world of sports, really football?
1: Wow, that's a complicated question. <laughs> um, I could, that could be the only question you ask, and I could talk for hours. Um, well, you know, I think a couple of things to simplify, I guess, and answer that question. Um, George was actually the first black man drafted by an NFL team. Mm-hmm. He was drafted by the Chicago Bears in 1949.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was also the first black man uh, to play quarterback in the NFL.
2: Oh, wow. Um,
1: Right. And a lot of people probably think of Willie Thrower um, when you hear first black quarterback in the NFL. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And even George would give Willie Thrower um, the credit for that because Thrower was actually on the roster as a quarterback.
2: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: George played several different positions, but two years before Thrower uh, filled in as quarterback um, and quarterbacked numerous times. I think he threw 96 some passes um, before Willie Thrower even came on the scene.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, Mm -hmm. um, but George will tell you because, you know, that's the intention of the team was to have Willie Thrower as a quarterback. And that wasn't the case with George. He wasn't rostered as one. Um, so he gives Willie Thrower the credit.
0: Right. What a great name, Willie Thrower.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. For, for no other reason than his last name, he should get the credit. I mean, <laughs> he's thrower.
0: <laughs> you know, you have a very unique background when it comes to George. Tell me how you met him. What was he doing?
1: Well, he was my social work professor at Indiana University. Um, I was actually coerced into taking the class by one of my roommates Mm -hmm. who had taken it as an elective and said, you absolutely have to take this class. The professor is amazing. Um, I needed another elective, but I was also trying to avoid 8am classes. So I wasn't so sure. (laughs) We don't want,
0: we don't want your students to hear that, do we?
1: (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) um, So anyway, they ended up saying you just have to. So um, I was actually on crutches, uh, had a knee injury, and I crutched into class 8 a.m., probably a a little bit grumpy. And this man just looks at me and starts laughing and says, well, here's one hung low, and gets me to laugh at 8 a.m., which was a pretty good accomplishment at the time. Um, And, you know, he... um, been a semester talking to our class about social work and the importance of listening to people's stories, uh, that every person has worth and dignity and deserves respect. Never once mentioned football, mm-hmm. um, but it was such, uh, an amazing course, especially for somebody who was going to become a teacher. And it had such an impact on me as it had my roommate who took the class before me. Um, I, I, Helped her coerce our other roommate into taking this class. So for a year and a half, he had one of us. And when it was over, we stayed in touch, went to dinners with him and his wife and friends sometimes. And mm-hmm. uh, that was when I first heard football associated with him. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So at what point did you realize who he was or, or not necessarily who he was, but how important in the world of sports, he really was, and the fact that he was the first African American to be drafted in the NFL—did that? Did that impress you? Did it mean anything to you at the at that time? What point? It, it did yeah, yeah? What point did yeah. you realize the significance of all of this?
1: Um, you know, I think it was so we were at one of those dinners my college roommates and I went back to Bloomington after we graduated and occasionally had dinners like I said with George and his wife and some of their friends. I believe we were actually at the Red Lobster in Bloomington. Hmm. Um, and I was actually talking to someone else at the other end of the table that I heard someone say, "When you played football here, George," or something, and I went, "Wait, what?" <laughs> and I just kind of tuned in and I said, "You played football here?" And his friend said, you didn't know that? And I said, no. And I said, George, you never told me you played football. And he said, well, it had nothing to do with social work. <laughs> and the friend who was talking to him said, well, then you probably didn't know he was the first black man drafted by an NFL team. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> i have just, I mean, I've known him for, you know, well over a year now. He's had all three of us in class. None of us knew. Um, And that was very like him. He's very humble. And if it had nothing to do with social work, why would he bring it up? Um, But that was when I started asking questions and eventually learned that IU had been a segregated campus when he played there Mm -hmm. and that he had to live off campus despite having been actively recruited by Indiana University. And so, you know, it the even though I was fairly young, the impact of that, just that, you know, he had stood in front of my class in Valentine Hall at IU and I had no idea that when he was a student there himself, what he had been through. Mm -hmm. And so I I started asking more and more questions and I, I don't know, one morning I think I was actually brushing my teeth when I was thinking how I didn't know when I was in his class and he's this, not just Indiana treasure, but national treasure that people didn't know about. So I called him and said, I'd like to write a book about you. And he laughed.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I don't think he thought I'd actually do it, but he appeased me and was like, sure, sure, we can do that. <laughs> so
0: how, how long from the time that you were brushing your teeth and called him to you <laughs> actually put pen to paper and started to write the book about George?
1: Um, wow, well, it was a long process. Um, In that time, I started a teaching career and had three kids, (laughs) and it was this uh, constant, almost nag that, um, you know, I would occasionally work on. I was still, you know, my roommates and I were still going to see George, and I was scheduling now interviews with him. We drove to South Bend and went to the College Football Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. when I was there, and um, it was, you know, a neat experience to walk through the museum with him and, and talk about stories that he associated with different people there, like Pete Pejos, who had played at IU with him. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But I was, you know, it was little bits here and there, um, really back burner. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as my kids got older and I started having a little more time and I started to feel um, that nag uh, get a little stronger, like this is something I need to get done while he can enjoy it. Sure. Um, and so I just finally decided it was time to really actively pursue it. Um, but it took a lot of research. I wasn't alive at that time period. I love football, but I never played. Um, <laughs> I'm not black. I mean, in fact, I, I remember our first uh, one of our first football our uh, first book signings. Uh, George would sign and then pass the book to me, and he passed the, this book to me, and this gentleman looks at me and goes, "Well, wh- what are you doing? Who are you?" And I said, "I oh, I wrote the book." And he went, "No, really." <laughs>
2: <laughs> how,
0: so. how? How? Um, how? Uh, I, I don't know what the word is, but unique or difficult or um, how tough was it for a a woman who didn't play the game of football to write a book about George Taliaferro? but not only a woman, a white woman talking Mm -hmm. about an African American. Like you said, somebody's like, like, who are you really? Why didn't an Mm -hmm. African American write a book about an African American? Was it difficult at all to understand some of the subject matter that he might've been taking you through?
1: Oh yeah. And actually I think that's, that's one of the reasons why the book is important, because it, it it was important for me to do so much research to even try to understand. Um, I will say that winning over George's wife, Viola Califero, who is a judge,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, She was probably, I think, the one who had the most reservation. George would just say, well, she's the one that thought of it, and she's doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No one else asked. (laughs) Right. Um, And that's part of it, I suppose. I saw a story, and it needed to be told, and I was the one willing to do it. Um, But I think when she saw the research that I put into it and that it was authentic, my wanting to understand, um, I won her over.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, I, I think that was um at the point where I probably felt the most confident in what I was doing because mm-hmm. I also had those doubts. Sure. You know. Um and even when it came out, I still had doubts because I was young and inexperienced and again, why me? Um and immediately George started telling me more stories. Our first book signing, he told me a story on the way there. And I just went, I just panicked and said, that's not in the book. <laughs> and he said, well, Dawn, I, of course it's not. I've lived, you know, at that point, 70 some years and, uh, late or 80 years. And so, no, it's not in the book. Not everything's in the book. And I said that that should be, that one should be. And so I immediately felt like I had failed. Uh-huh. Um He didn't feel that way. I felt that way. And I started filing away stories over the last decade as he continued to tell them to me. And, uh, you know, Malcolm X, he met at the Red Rooster in Harlem. That wasn't in the book. Oh, my gosh. You met Malcolm X. That should be in the book. You know, so I've been filing away these stories. And then, um, you know, the Colin Kaepernick controversy Mm -hmm. started and I saw it oh my gosh, I, I I really missed something important here. And that's that, you know, the idea of football as a vehicle for social change wasn't just George,
2: that right. this is
1: something that's been going on for a long time. And that it's such an important thing that's going on today. And so I called IU and said, can we redo the book? Can we publish it again? I have more to tell. And I think it's really important today more than ever. Uh-huh. And they agreed. Um, and so it's actually currently um, in the works that comes out July 1st. Um, and, and this time I feel like I, I did it justice. I really do. The first time I told his story, um, this time what I told was, you know, George is a vehicle to tell a larger story wow. about race in America.
2: Wow. And impressive. so, th-
1: yeah, this time it's actually called Race in America, the life and legacy of George Talafero. Mm-hmm. And I just think it tells a much larger, more important piece of the story.
0: Wow. Wow. Hey, how did you get Tony Dungy
1: involved? Uh, well, I called the Colts um, and said, You have no idea who I am. I'm this English teacher and I'm doing this thing. And can I talk to somebody? And so. Uh, they put me online. I think they were just like, "Oh sure, here's a PR person. <laughs> 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 um, so whatever. Um, and so I ended up, you know saying, "Here's the deal. I would really like to interview Coach Dungey um uh, because he was a player who was, you know, switched from the quarterback position when he went pro right. um and and so, and also played big Ten. And so I wanted to talk about his experience. And after um, I finally interviewed, actually, it was funny, we played phone tag, which actually was neat because then I had a voicemail and I was going, Listen, Tony Dungy called me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so he called and we ended up having the interview. And I thought, you know, he needs to write the foreword. And so I called him back one day and said, I know this is a lot to ask, um, but would you be willing to? And he said, Absolutely. Um, he said George was, you know, somebody really important and inspired a lot of people. So very cool.
0: Yeah. So in your discussions with George, what impressed you most about him?
1: Um, you know, George has always, um, been able to, um, meet obstacles with a sense of of humor Mm -hmm. and dignity and positivity. Um, and I, I think that's part of it. I just, you know, I, I hear about what he went through and then I see him still smiling and still wanting to help others. And, you know, when these three white girls who were in a social work class are like, let's go to dinner. He, you know, sure. Why not? I'll go to dinner with you guys.
2: Right.
1: Um, just, you know, such an open... Um, genuine person who really and truly just wanted to make the world a better place.
0: That's awesome. And as proud a person as he must have been about his accomplishments on the field, he must have been prouder about what he did off the field. Is that true? Tell us a little bit about how proud he was of how he gave back and contributed to the well-being of his community to all of the organizations that he was associated with.
1: Yeah, you know, there were a couple of things that he was most proud of, and one was being educated, um, and that was something that his Mm -hmm. parents had had instilled in him, and neither of them had, um, you know, much of an education. Um, Although they were incredibly intelligent people, Mm -hmm. um, they didn't have an, you know, an education. And he was very proud to fulfill a promise to them and that he had uh, four daughters who were college educated and a wife who was college educated. And Mm -hmm. so that was um, something that he was very proud of. Um, He initially was going into education when he got out of professional football and uh, lived in Baltimore at the time and played for the Baltimore Colts, he couldn't get a job um, at the Baltimore public school system because there were only two all black schools and they weren't Mm. hiring and he wasn't um, able to work for the white schools. And that was what probably one of his lowest points. Mm. Um, He wanted to um, be an educator and he had so much to offer he wanted to coach football and he had been in the pro bowl three times. I mean, you know, this is some, someone that any school would have been lucky to have and he couldn't get Mm -hmm. a job because Mm -hmm. he was black. And he ended up, um, deciding to go back and get a social work degree so he could just help people period.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, in that capacity, he helped so many people. Um, but he also has worked, you know, with prisons and he has uh, worked with big brothers, big sisters, and the Children's Organ Transplant Association. And so, um, yeah, giving back is, is probably the thing that he is most proud of.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Dawn, of course, the name of this podcast is Sports Forgotten Heroes. So I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about what he did on the field as well. So it's important, uh, yeah. yeah, that we talk about yeah. <laughs> some of those accomplishments. And he was just flat out a terrific athlete, and and football was his game. Now, when he was thinking about college, Indiana was not on his radar, at least from what I've what I've read. How did he end up with the Hoosiers? Uh, there were a couple of
1: things. So um, he. He went to school at Gary Roosevelt High School, and um, Gary Roosevelt. Uh, this was 1949, his senior year, uh, 48, 49. He um, no, I apologize, 45, 1945.
2: Okay. Um,
1: his school, because it was an all-black school, wasn't eligible for any postseason honors or tournaments. Um, the season was over, and East Chicago Roosevelt High School. Um, near Chicago also, Gary and, and East Chicago were both in the region of, of Gary but in Indiana. East Chicago um, had a bye and they were an absolute powerhouse of the team and they wanted to play a game because they didn't want two weeks off before the tournament um, and so they thought, well, we know Gary Roosevelt's available to play mm. and so their their coach Pete Rus- Rusinski contacted the Gary Roosevelt coach and set up a game. Um, and they ended up Gary Roosevelt ended up winning that game, um, at the very last second with a touchdown by George. Mm -hmm. And when the game was over, the East Chicago coach ended up contacting a good friend of his who was at, uh, the football coach, Bo McMillan at Indiana university and said, you really need to see this kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So he sent another black athlete to Gary to talk to George and recruit him. Um, And it just so happened at the same time, you know, the World War II draft was going on. And one of the neighbors of the Talitharo said if he goes to, you know, a a public in-state school, he's less likely to get drafted. And so, you know, those two things kind of came together and he ended up at Indiana University.
0: Interesting. And we're going to get to the draft again in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, But right now, I want to talk a little bit more about racism. Segregation was always a part of George's story, especially back in the 40s and the 50s. So he had to face a lot of that while he was at Indiana. And even though he was really the star of the team Tell us a little bit about the types of things he faced from eating in the cafeteria to traveling with the team and maybe in some instances not being allowed to play at all.
1: Right. Yeah, there were, you know, uh, games in the South. He actually, I want to clarify because um, as an IU grad, I feel it's really necessary to say this. Um, it was horrible. The campus was segregated. Um, you know, again, he had been actively recruited to play there, but couldn't live on campus, uh, couldn't get his hair cut without going to the barber's home mm-hmm. um, because he couldn't be in public, couldn't go to restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. movie theaters only on weekends and only in the balconies. Um, and, you know, this is north of the Mason-Dixon line. Right. Um, right. And um, interestingly, you um, President Herman Wells, the president of IU at the time, was actively also working to desegregate. Um, And George Talitharo's coach, who was a Texan, um, didn't believe in it. And so both of those men fought alongside George and other black players to actually start changing things. Um, And Bo McMillan, IU's coach, was starting black players Mm -hmm. Um, other schools like Purdue and Notre Dame didn't have black players. In some places, the black players were stacked behind one another, um, not starting. Mm -hmm. And so Indiana was kind of an interesting place because while it was segregated and there were clearly issues, um, they were also ahead of their time in some ways, as far as that goes. So Mm it's kind of an interesting time. Um, his coach, for example, if they played games in the South, um, would insist that his players all stay together and would say, you know, if that hotel doesn't want us, find one that does.
2: Um, and so
1: there was definitely, yeah, some insistence, um, in kind of bucking, you know, the status quo. So he was fortunate in that and had some examples in that, but there were still things, um, his, his freshman year, he was the star player on Indiana's undefeated team. Um, and a picture of that, the starting 11, hung in a restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, and it was one that George wasn't allowed to go in. And so he <laughs> would try to cup his face at the window to just see, you know, a picture that he was in. So there were, you know, it was it was a really interesting time.
0: You know, you, you mentioned his freshman year. In fact, in his first game, if I have this right, against Minnesota, he took the opening kickoff 95 yards for a touchdown. I mean, what a crazy debut. He also returned an interception 82 yards for a touchdown. He scored a third touchdown in a more conventional manner as a running back. Indiana won that game something like, I think it was 49 to nothing. Just how good or great was George? What made him so special?
1: Uh, I don't know what made him so special. Um, You know, some of it was attitude and confidence. Um, But he definitely had an innate ability when it came to the game of football. He absolutely loved it. When he was a kid, he and some friends all, um, you know, found cans and bottles and things and, and, tried to get money together till finally they were able to put together enough money to buy a football and they would play from sun up to sometimes he would wake up in the middle of the night and ask his mom if it was morning yet so he could go play (laughs) um and so i really think some of it was just that he absolutely loved to play football Mm -hmm. i really do his passion for the game Mm -hmm. um I want to say it was actually Michigan that was the opening game, because I remember him telling me uh, when he ran out onto the field, he was like, oh, my gosh, this is the biggest stadium and the most people I've ever seen.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but you're right. There were so many instances where, you know, he'd run 95 yards uh, for a reception or he I think he caught his own pass at one point. <laughs> I don't even know how that happened. Um, so, yeah, he was an incredible player.
0: His contributions to Indiana football are, for the lack of a better term, legendary. I mean, think about it. The Hoosiers are known for basketball, not football. And in fact, only twice has Indiana been atop the Big Ten. In 1967, they split the conference title with Purdue and Minnesota when each team went six and one. And before that, You'd have to go all the way back to 1945 when Indiana won the conference outright with a 5-0-1 mark on its way to an overall record of 9-0-1, and they finished that season ranked number four in the country. And that team, George, was on. What does he say about that team? What can you tell us about that season and and George, who incidentally was an All-America?
1: Right. Um, So, you know, when George first got down there, um, that cockiness that he had as he was an absolute, you know, high school hero as well and and did very similar things at Gary Roosevelt. Um, But when he arrived at Indiana, first, there was the whole issue of, you know, having to live on campus. He was upset he didn't get to live in the dorm. He understood that being around other people from other countries was part of education. Um, and then he got in line for equipment, and he was surrounded by these absolutely huge people. And he thought, "Oh my gosh, I do not belong here." Um, <laughs> and he actually looked at McMillan and said, "Are you sure they're the same age as me?" Um, so McMillan assured him, "You are. You have a place here. You're supposed to be here. This is where you belong." Um, and McMillan loved to run a cockeyed T formation, um, and wanted to see how George would handle that. Um, basically the ball would be snapped to, to George. He would handle the ball as a quarterback, but he was a tailback in the cockeyed tee. And so the ball would be snapped to him. He could, you know, pass it, hand it off or run it. And the first two times that coach McMillan called for the play in practice, he ran at 80 yards for a touchdown. (laughs) And, um, the the first time uh, coach McMillan said, turn a little to the left, to the right, George, I think. And then, you know, and George said, well, how was it for distance? <laughs> so it ended up becoming McMillan's favorite play for him. And he would just yell, let George do it. And that would be the, you know, time to do the, the, the play. You know, so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so, you know, that's, he, he ended up showing, you know, that, all he needed was a little bit of confidence, and then he was back in his game again. Right. Um, and that that season, he was the best all-around offensive player. He was first-team Big Ten, second-team All-American. He had over 100 yards a game running and passing. I mean, he was he was incredible.
0: So good, in fact, that teams like Michigan couldn't stand it. And earlier you talked about the draft. So I've got to ask this question because it's really, if what I read is true, it is absolutely quite unbelievable. So like I said, teams like Michigan didn't like how good Indiana was. And in fact, their coach, Michigan's coach, Fritz Chrysler, pulled off one of the, the greatest moves I've ever heard of to ensure that a certain football player wouldn't beat his team. And I guess he sort of knew he wouldn't beat Indiana if George was on the team. And in fact, in 1945, Michigan's only loss came against Indiana. What Chrysler did to ensure Talafero wouldn't beat him in 1946 is absolutely incredible. Tell me how Fritz Chrysler manipulated the system the military, to remove George from the roster of the Indiana Hoosiers?
1: Well, um, I can't say for sure that that did happen. Um, What I do know is that uh, when he was um, at Fort Benning, Georgia, with some of his other—no, not Fort Benning, Georgia. He um, was—where was he stationed? Oh, uh, Petersburg, Virginia, Camp Lee. Um, He ran into some other University of Michigan players, um, and the Big Ten guys kind of hung out and stuck together, and uh, a couple of those players actually said that Fritz Chrysler had gotten George drafted because they didn't want to have to play against him again. Um, and he couldn't he couldn't confirm that, but they were very serious about it. Um, and you know he he started laughing, and they said, "No, we're we're serious." And he said, "Well, how could how could he know such a thing?" And they said, all I can tell you is, you know, that's, that's what he said that we weren't going to have to play against you. (laughs) So he's not sure um, how that happened. Um, But he also knows that um, he was only in for 16 months when he received a call um, from coach McMillan saying that, Hey, you're going to be getting a phone call. Um, Just, you know, listen to the phone call and, you know, just pay attention kind of thing. And and he got a call and then he got some passes. And while he was gone for a couple of three-day passes, the rest of his unit shipped off to Japan. And when he came back from his leave, he was told he was getting honorably discharged. So he kind of feels like one Big Ten coach got him in and another Big Ten coach got him out. And he has no idea or had no idea where they had that pull.
0: So here's a story that has been bandied about on how Michigan coach Fritz Chrysler managed to have George Talaferro drafted into the U.S. Army so he wouldn't have to face an Indiana Hoosiers team with George. Indiana beat Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1945, and, as I just discussed with Dawn, Chrysler felt he couldn't beat an Indiana team with Talaferro. So... In an article written by Tom Archdeacon in the Dayton Daily News, Archdeacon wrote, Talafero became the first American to lead the Big Ten in rushing and was named a second-team All-American. He was also honored after the 47 and 48 seasons and might have been in 1946, too, had his college career not been interrupted for a year when he suddenly was drafted into the Army. He said he was later told by some in the know that Michigan coach Fritz Chrysler secretly helped orchestrate his change of uniforms. Now, all I could find were mentions that it had something to do with residency, and Chrysler was able to get George's residency switched to Indiana, where he would have to enter the draft. Incidentally, Michigan finished the nineteen forty six season number four in the country, going six two and one overall and five one and one in what was then known as the Big Nine Conference. Michigan State was not a member of the conference yet, while Indiana went six and three overall and four and two in the conference and finished the season ranked twentieth in the country. And and if I also understand correctly, he didn't Want to play football for the Army bases team, but the base commander gave him an ultimatum and said, "Either play or other arrangements will be made." Can you talk about that at all?
1: Yeah, well, um, they were. That was the Fort Benning, Georgia game. Um, they they went to Fort Benning, Georgia, and um, he was. You know, the the black players on the team were actually. Um, taken to a different part of the base in much lesser accommodations and um, served kind of leftover food and things like that and uh, just were generally not treated well. And um, George basically just kind of had decided he had enough. So he said, I'm I'm not playing. And, you know, the other black player said, same here, we're with you. We're not going to play if you're not going to play. And he said, this is my fight. You do not have to do this. And they said we're with you, um, and so eventually uh, this, the commanding officer called him in to his office and said, "Soldier, you can be discharged, dishonorably discharged." And George said, "Then you better start doing it because I won't play." And they ended up moving the black players back into the accommodations where the white players were, and they played the game.
0: Hmm, interesting. Stood his ground. Yeah. He was he was building his 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 his. his persona quite early so
1: yeah yeah that was probably the first instance where he really decided it was time to start actively um, not being complacent
0: right which goes into what you said earlier about um, adding to his book and talking about these social issues he started to make a stand when he he went to the army And shortly thereafter as well, because he goes back to Indiana, plays football for Indiana, and then on to professional football, where he signed with the Los Angeles Dons of the AAFC, the All-America Football Conference why did he opt to play for the AAFC and not make an attempt to play in the NFL? Was it strictly because at that time people of color still hadn't broken the barrier?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, I think both leagues, um, you know, had issues as far as, as black players playing for the teams. Um, it was more a, a couple of things. One, he had already verbally agreed to play for the Don. um, he was shocked when he was drafted by an NFL team, because that simply didn't happen
2: mm-hmm. um, until him. Right. And
1: so he wasn't expecting that. Um, and so when the Don um, offered him and, and keep in mind at this time, the all American football can, uh, conference was paying higher salaries than the NFL. It sure. was definitely a war for players. Um, they had tried to kind of make nice and the NFL didn't even want to acknowledge their existence. So they said, fine, then we'll take your players. And they started offering more money. Um, So he had a verbal agreement with the Dons. Um, They were offering more money. He had promised his mother and father that he would be the man of his word. And so he didn't want to break that. And so he ended up staying with the Dons, despite it being a childhood dream to play for the Bears. I mean, Gary is just outside of Chicago. So he had, you know, as a kid, he would have loved to play for the Chicago Bears.
0: But he did get drafted by the Bears, and I guess he thought he would never be drafted by the Bears or any team in the NFL. What happened? How did he find out he was drafted by the Bears?
1: Uh, Well, he was... um, practicing with a couple of other players, uh, Sherman Howard and buddy young were friends of his. Um, they had all, uh, worked out, um, together in the Chicago area. Um, they had worked out that morning and decided they would meet up again later, uh, for, um, lunch and, and, uh, let's see, and Earl Banks, um, that was another NFL player at the time who was also working out with them. Mm-hmm. So they worked out at lunch, met up for lunch. Banks came a little late. Uh, when he got there, he had a folded up newspaper kind of hidden behind his, his back. And he said, hey, guess who was drafted by Bears? And of course, they were all throwing out the names of white players. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he finally couldn't take it anymore and pulled the newspaper out and opened it. And it said, George Talaferro is drafted by Chicago Bears.
0: What was his reaction to that?
1: Uh, He said he was just dumbfounded. (laughs) (laughs) He said they all were, really, but he was definitely dumbfounded.
0: Did he regret giving his word at that point to the Los Angeles Dons and not staying as a free agent, so to speak, or giving himself an opportunity to wait till the NFL draft had happened?
1: He ended up playing for a lot of losing teams over the next eight years Mm -hmm. um, or seven years. Um, And I think it could have been a big regret because he was such an amazing player who had often just played for abysmal teams. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But he said looking back, he couldn't really regret that because if he had played for Chicago, he would have been close to home um where he would have had the comforts of home and people he knew and he feels like part of who he was was all of these experiences going to different places and learning about different people um and having to get out of his comfort zone.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so ultimately as a person, he feels like that past, you know, just is part of who he was. Mm-hmm. Um but I, it would also be hard to say that there weren't any, you know, that weren't times where he thought, man, I could have played for the Bears, <laughs>
0: right sure did Did he ever talk about perhaps finally making it to the NFL via the AAFC when when the NFL absorbed those couple of teams? did it make it any easier to uh, play in the NFL because other colored ball players went there with him?
1: Yeah, there were I mean there were black players in the NFL. They were just uh they had to try out for the team, so they weren't part of the draft. Um so there were some not a lot, obviously. So it did help that there were black players who um, you know, he ended up on teams with in fact mm-hmm. He, um, when the AAFC merged with the NFL, because both were going to be financially devastated if they didn't merger,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, the Dons folded um, and became the New York Bulldogs, which then got renamed to the New York Yanks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and he got to play for the first time with Buddy Young at that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, and they, you know, they were uh, just a, an, an impressive duo together. But Buddy Young had gone to Illinois and, you know, was another Big Ten player who had had a, a similar um, upbringing and similar issues as a black player in a Big Ten school. And so um, it was definitely comfortable to have somebody with him who went, you know, had a shared experience like that.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: One of the most amazing things about his career is the fact that he played extensively, seven different positions in the NFL, quarterback, yeah. running back, kicker, I mean seven positions, just how good was he and what was he most proud about from his career?
1: Um, you know, I think that's that's part of it, that versatility. I mean, he was one of the last Iron Man players, but I think he was the only person to play seven positions in the NFL.
2: That's correct. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, he, like you said, he was a passer, a runner, a receiver, a puncher, punt returner, kickoff returner, <laughs> defensive <laughs> halfback. I mean, he, he did everything. Um, and he, you know, he played the entire game without coming out. And so um, I, I think that versatility is one of the things he's most proud of, but he also, you know, he had three, Pro Bowl appearances, and like I said, despite having never ever played for a winning team. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, yeah. Even though he was proving his worth on the field, there were still many teams that were not a fan of his, particularly the owner of the Washington Redskins, um, George Preston Marshall, made a pretty mm-hmm. big deal of facing George, didn't he?
1: Yeah. And in, in fact, um, he used the, you know, he, George was standing in front of him on the sidelines, I, believed, and, uh, I believe. And I believe in Marshall made a comment about, uh, you know, the N word and you know, that they should only be pushing wh- wheelbarrows or something mm. like that. And mm. yeah. So George, George went out and scored three touchdowns and he just, he laughs when he tells the story. <laughs> um, and, and when I say that's the kind of humor, that's what I mean. He, you know, he didn't, turn around and punch someone although i don't think anyone would blame him but instead he um yeah just went out and scored three touchdowns and then left
0: that's where he's very much alike um jackie robinson they let their ability on the field do their talking for them as opposed to any sort of physical aggression in the wrong way um i watched well, that and he's- yeah go go ahead
1: yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, he said, you know, he said it gave him the ability to get out his frustration on the white person, you know, without having to do something bad. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was an outlet.
0: Did he ever talk about Jackie Robinson? Did they ever
2: meet?
1: Um, yeah, he said it was. he was very quiet. In fact, they met a couple of different times. Um, he said that uh, Robinson had definitely, you know had had such a hard time um, so often and was so isolated uh, when he played baseball that um, he really didn't socialize much. But they, they ended up in the same uh, circle a few mm-hmm. different times. And so he said he, he was just a gentleman and such a nice person, but that he it had definitely damaged him.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, George had a good professional career. I-, I wouldn't say it was a great professional career, but it was solid. It was good. Did he ever talk about his pro career, and does he think he should have been elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame?
1: Um, he, he doesn't mention the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I would love to see him get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, I I think, you know, part of it is just how humble he is. It's, it's something that he never mentioned.
2: Uh Other
1: people have mentioned it to me as well. Um, we should start a campaign to get him in it. Um,
0: Sometimes that works. uh,
1: uh, Right, right. But it's not something he ever mentioned.
0: Uh Uh-huh. How proud was he by the virtue of the fact that he was elected to the college football hall of fame?
1: He was very proud of that. Um, it, It was a highlight for him.
0: The strangest of things. When you research Indiana University football, individual stats for 1945 are displayed proudly. But 1946 through 1955 are just not available. I couldn't find them. But we do know this, in his first year back with the Hoosiers, 1947, and then again in 1948, Talaferro was Indiana's MVP, and also in 1948, he made the All-America team as a defensive back. In the pros, George rushed for 2,266 yards on 498 carries, and he scored 15 touchdowns. As a receiver, he caught 95 passes for another 1,300 yards and 12 touchdowns. George appeared as a quarterback in 72 games, starting 53 of them. He threw for 10 touchdowns during the course of his career, completing 92 of 284 attempts for 1,633 yards. His career average as a punter was 37.5 yards per punt and he also returned punts and kickoffs. In fact, in 1949, for the Los Angeles Dons of the AAFC, George returned a punt 52 yards for a touchdown. George spent the 1949 season with the Dons, the 1950 and 51 season with the New York Yankees. Yes, there was an NFL team named the New York Yankees. The 1952 season, he played with the Dallas Texans, 1953 and 54, he was with the Baltimore Colts, and in his last year, 1955, he played for the Philadelphia Eagles. George made the Pro Bowl three times as well, 1951, 52, and 53. But he really made his mark in college football, and that 1945 season, his freshman year, was really special. He played in 10 games and rushed for 719 yards on 156 carries, and he scored six touchdowns. He also threw the ball 19 times, completing 10 passes for 96 yards. Let's go back a little bit further to the beginning life off the field. Talk about his upbringing. Uh, you sort of touched upon it before about where he was from, but what kind of discrimination did he face when when he was being brought up?
1: Uh, you know, he actually said he was, he was kind of in this um, bubble in Gary, even though there were things he was aware of, like the fact that he went to an all-black school and there were all-white schools and they couldn't play each other. Um, they would drive for hours and hours to play other black schools sometimes because they weren't allowed to play schools that were 10 minutes away. Um, And so there were things he was definitely aware of. Mm -hmm. But he said his neighborhood was really what he wished all neighborhoods could be. Um, It was such a melting pot because Gary was actually created as a steel town. um, And the majority of its inhabitants worked in the steel mills. Um, And his neighborhood, there was this socioeconomic equality and people who were, um, you know, immigrants from all over. And he said it was just a melting pot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the Serbian family down the street would roast a hog and the (laughs) people, you know, all the other people would come and bring side dishes from all the different cultures. Mm. And they and and the kids didn't see each other as different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was relatively sheltered mm-hmm. in a lot of ways there, and it was very eye-opening when he went to Indiana because it's when he really realized what racism is.
0: Right, and and his father, who was pretty tough on him and knew the value of an education, knew that it was so important for George to continue to strive to get his degree, to get his education, even when he was facing such awful discrimination. What did George's father tell George to, to keep him in school as he's facing these, these horrors?
1: Yeah. Well, when, like I said, when he arrived, he was definitely pretty shell-shocked, um, and it was, you know, having to live off campus, and it was the size of the other football players. He he felt like he had made a mistake. And he called his, his father and said, I, I want to come home. And his father said, why are you there? And basically just hung the phone up on him, you know, and made him think about, okay, you have to think about why are you there? And, and yeah. you're there for an education. And, and George realized and and it was something that his father had been telling him all his life. You have to be educated. And he knew that football was the vehicle to make that happen. It was the scholarship. And so he had to stick it out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I don't know if you can quantify this, but was George more proud of the fact that he Got a degree at Indiana? Was he more proud of the fact of the way he played football at Indiana and later in the pros or what he did after his playing days were over? Were they all equal? Um, could you say he was more proud of one than the other? Uh, it's so funny to hear you talk earlier about the fact that you took classes from him and he never even mm-hmm. mentioned that he played football. He must have also been right. a very humble guy.
1: Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it is it is hard to say what he would be most proud of. I, I think um, he was proud to have lived such a rich life um, that was centered around helping others. Um, but I do think he was also very proud that he fulfilled his promise to his parents and got a degree because once he decided to go pro, um, he ended up, um, leaving in 1949. He still had one year of school yet left because of that year in the army and his mom was not having it. You know, she said, you promised, mm-hmm. you know, what we, you know, and, and he really felt torn. Um, and we haven't really gotten into this yet, but his father had died in a tragic accident, um, on Christmas day, his, mm. uh, well, you know, 1948 when the first year he came back to IU after the army. Right. Um, And, you know, and his mom said, you promised. But he also knew that she was having a hard time making ends meet without his father's income and that he could go pro and help. And so he was very torn that, you know, I want to help mom. I want to fulfill my promise. And so ultimately he said, I will have them write into my contract that I have to get my college degree. (laughs) And so she finally acquiesced. And he came back to Indiana over the summer and finished his degree. Yeah. You know, um, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And you talk about the death of his father. And of course it would have such a profound impact on anybody when they lose a parent, but talk about how that did affect George and the decisions that he had to make.
1: Yeah. He, um, he was actually home, uh, for winter break and, um, his, He was at a party with some friends, although George never drank. He's never, he never had a drink of alcohol. Um, yeah, he uh, was at a party with some friends and his parents were with neighbors at a Christmas party. And when he came back home, he saw his mom and the neighbors getting in the car and he said, Oh, you're, you know, home already or leaving already or something. And they said, we're going to the hospital. And, He hopped in the car and, you know, they told him that, uh, his, they had looked at his uncle's new gun. Um, he had gotten a shotgun for Christmas and, um, it was loaded and they didn't realize it. And his uncle accidentally shot his father and he died on Christmas morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, after that, he, he really, his, his father had been such an important, strong figure in his life. And, you know, he always wanted to, um, seek his dad's approval and, and make his dad happy. And he learned so many lessons and he wanted to be just like his dad. And so that loss was um, something that had a, a very major impact on his life. And it's originally, he, he thought he would leave. Um, his mom convinced him to stay. And then he worked in the steel mill in the same area that his dad had been a, a foreman um, over the the summer and uh, everyone said, Your dad wants you to get educated. And so he went back to IU again. Um, but he still struggled with the decision. And that was finally at the end of that football season when he said, I'm done after this year, Mom. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get my degree. I promise. I will keep that promise. But you need help, and I need to help you, and I, I need to do this.
0: Do you think his playing a role in the development of such organizations as big brothers and big sisters, any of that was, I don't know, in honor of his father, but trying to still make his father proud of the kind of person he was becoming. And did he try to prove that to his father throughout his life, that he was going to be a good person and make a difference?
1: Yeah, you know that's a great question. I don't. I, I think in general, being a good person, um, being a man of your word, being honorable—those um, were qualities that his father instilled in him. And so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, those were ways to show that. I don't know necessarily um, if ch- you know charities um, and his work with those were. Um, Particularly his father's leaning, but I but I do think that being a good person and being humble and being a man of your word, I think those all came from his father. Um, I know that uh, one of his favorite college football memories was in 1947, the Dad's Day game, and his father came. It was the only only the second time he had ever seen George play, mm-hmm. and um, after the game was over. Um, he heard his father say, that's my boy, and point at him. And he said, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. Wow. Because, yeah. He said, because he owned me, he was proud of me.
0: That's awesome. What an interesting and fulfilled life that, that George led. And the book that you have coming out this July is so relevant to what's happening today. I'm sure that it's going to be filled with so many lessons and, 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 and so much relevancy that I'm really looking forward to seeing how you've updated the book about George with all these new stories.
1: Yeah, I, and I think that's what's really important about it. There were a lot of other, you know, parallel stories that were going on that I also um, connected this time. Um, his wasn't an isolated experience. And, you know, there were other players, uh, that were using their, um, uh, positions as popular athletes to also facilitate social change. And I think at the end of the day, you know, when you read these stories, um, it it just, it's, I hope at the very least it, um, Creates conversation because I think that's what's really lacking. It's it, we're so polarized and not listening. You know, sharing memes instead of listening to one another. Right. And um, I, I just really hope that it creates that conversation.
0: Dawn, in the end, how should we all remember George Talaferro?
1: Um, I, I think that um, gosh, I don't know because there are so many things I want to say. I mean, he was he was an educator. He was a human. Um, and I think, you know, just seeing him as an example of the way relationships and people, um, can be, um, that he was so open and accepting, um, and humble. I, I don't, I, I, I it's just so hard to put words to that question. Um, but I think, you know, education and listening and empathy and not being complacent, <laughs>
0: so many things. Well, Dawn, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. We obviously have only touched upon the surface of the life of a truly remarkable human being in George Talaferro. And um, tell people where they can get a hold of your book and uh, about the uh, a little more about the new book coming out.
1: Okay. Well, um, it comes out July 1st. Um, you can get it at Indiana University Press. Um, I think you can even pre-order it now, from what I understand. But it'll also be available on Amazon and other, uh, you know, book, where books are sold. I don't know which. Um, I, I think it'll be kind of all over. But Sure. Definitely Amazon and at IU Press.
0: Well, thank you again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I've had a great time talking with you, and I can't thank you enough for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. George Talafero passed away on October 18th, 2018. Of course, I never had the pleasure of meeting George, nor did I know much about him prior to his death. That's a shame. Someone who led a life as rich as his, with all the adversity he faced and how he overcame all of it, is certainly something to be admired and celebrated. It takes a special individual, a person with incredible drive and fortitude to beat the odds. And not only did George beat the odds, he set a new standard for many to follow. I want to thank Dawn Knight for joining us on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I look forward to her updated version of the book, which is due to come out early summer 2019. Thanks again for listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Next time, we're going to talk about a team long forgotten, but its story is one of the most important in the history of the NBA. We're talking about the St. Louis Hawks. Thanks for
2: listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.